The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. How many times might a board member have asked, what are we doing to innovate? And how many times did anything happen? Well, at Minter Ellison Rudd Watts, that question was answered by the start of an innovation lab that has led to a company joint venture spun out with VC backing to help use AI to change how the law works. The fantastically named McCarthy Finch are using NLP, machine learning and human inputs to help analyse mountains of legal documents in a fraction of the time humans would, augmenting them to make decisions faster and cut out the legwork while looking out for the fish hooks. The company has jumped onto the world stage, winning awards like Sir Richard Branson judged Global Talent Unleashed gongs and becoming the first local company to make the finals of the TechCrunch startup battlefield, pitching in front of an audience of up to 6 million. With partners and clients, including some of the biggest professional services and law firms, the idea is finding amazing traction around the world. And the CEO, co-founder and winner of Most Disruptive Leader at the Talent Unleashed Awards, Nick Whitehouse, joins me now. G'day, thanks for being here. Good morning. Hey, so t- tell me about how this whole thing came out from uh, the Minter Ellison Rudd Watts uh, board member. Uh, well, well yeah, we got asked. I got asked the question. I was newly minted as a, as a chief digital officer um, in a law firm, and um, that already was quite innovative for a law firm. I think we would have been one of the first, if not the first, law firm in the world to have a chief digital officer role. Um, but the question, "What are we doing to innovate?" Um, really was draw, uh, came from a position where the the firm was looking to the future, um, and the response to that, my response to that, was obviously starting up. Uh, innovation lab and actually trying to change that culture from sustaining innovations, which is very much about helping the existing business model of law and disruptive innovations. And we had this disruptive innovation, uh, which we called legal at the time. And and that was really aimed at helping businesses transact legal stuff faster. Um, And I was on a trip to Israel, uh, an innovation mission trip with Trans-Tasman Business Circle led by Simon Muta. um, And I met the, the late Ray Thompson um, over dinner uh, there. And, you know, we, we actually started talking as a New Zealand contingent in, in another country. And we, we thought, well, actually, that's a really cool idea. He said, what the hell is a law firm doing in another country looking at innovation? And that, got, that, that piqued his interest. Um, and he connected us through to um, Goat Ventures, which, is, uh, which was a, a, 
uh, VC that he was interested in. And, and really, we turned up the dial on the idea that we had um, and thought, why why would we focus on a, a $3 million idea in New Zealand when it's a billion-dollar idea globally? Um, and that, that's something we very much pursued. That's remarkable because I imagine in law firms, and you know we're only going back a few years now, aren't we? But still, it's an area of the the world where emails are printed out and put in files, and you, you know the, the the legislation around how you keep records is not kept pace with uh, the changing world. And yeah, it's it's a remarkably analog and. Um, person-centric kind of uh, industry, really, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And um, I can say without a doubt that, that it's, it's, it's the same everywhere in the world. So the same processes, whether your technical skills different, the same processes exist everywhere and the same challenges in law firms exist everywhere. And it is, it, for me, um, coming from a Spark, uh, Spark Digital, moving into, the, into Mentors, it was kind of like stepping back in time um, from a technology perspective. Um, and and that really, you know, got my juices flowing in terms of, well, there are some really simple things we can do that can immediately speed up uh, the entire f- firm. And and that's that was very much that sustaining innovation stuff that we kicked off. And so when that kind of question was put, you know, what can we do to innovate, do you think they were thinking, because they, they, they are, um, as you say, by having a chief digital officer um, at the front end, uh, progressive in terms of the digital uh, change in law, but do you think maybe they were thinking about something like, oh, I don't know, maybe we could digitally sign the odd contract and not have to print out the odd email? Or were they looking to kind of like um, get into the world of, AI and NLP and the, the whole place where you've ended up. Yeah, I, I think there's a strata, right? So so the beautiful thing about law firms and, and partnerships in general is that you have a, a wide range of opinions and views. And so, um, you know, you have people who are very much thinking about what happens in the future. What happens when we have digital courts, online mediation services? What happens when, um, you know, the, the hype of AI actually takes hold and nobody's using lawyers again? So you have these people who are thinking very, very much um, in the future. And then you have the other people who want to be head down and um, just do what they've been doing for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And and so I think I think really it was first first and foremost was gain the knowledge, understand what that future looks like, how it's actually going to impact the the business. And um, I think they were very progressive in answer, asking those questions to understand what that looked like. And what what is the concept that you you landed on? So yeah, t- t- tell us about what's become author. Yeah, so author, the mission of, of the business is very much about changing how law works. I mean, long, long, long term, we, we're thinking about changing how work works because um, ultimately that's the end goal of, of AI, really. Um, but in law, it, it's very much changing how law works. And, and I think there are, there are different levels um, as to what that means. Um, but the concept in general is to virtualize a lot of that legal uh, expertise and deploy it at an infinite scale um, to help businesses, to help consumers actually gain access to justice um, much more uh, readily than they can, they can currently. And we looked a lot at consumer law um, and we've kept away from consumer law for uh, reasons where I, I think 
um, there isn't a lot of interest there. The, the relevance of law to uh, the likes of you and I as consumers is, is not as strong as it is to small and medium businesses, for example, who make decisions about do I take this risk or do I not take this risk? Do I send this to a lawyer? Do I not send this to a lawyer? Um, and, and so ultimately it, it's about powering and changing and disrupting that whole model where um, everything's being built on billable hours now. Um, that knowledge transfer is about how long it takes, which actually the commercialization of that knowledge transfer is very much around how long it takes. And that is the antithesis to actual efficiency. Um, and that's a real, real struggle, uh, I think, for the industry. And so what we're trying to do is actually completely change how that happens, completely change how knowledge transfer occurs. Okay, so you focused in on kind of the, the small business market, people who might need to have contracts or leases, um, you know, things that regularly happen in the course of running their business uh, that they might have to go and see a lawyer about. And so how does the software or the system or the platform that you've built um, help someone? Let's say that I'm um, uh, Joanne Bloggs and I've got a lease for a new um, premises that I want to get checked. Yeah, so so I'll just um, kind of slightly mean that. It, it's Think about it in transact people who have to transact legal things often, which is typically b businesses, whether they're small, whether they're up to enterprises, enterprises have much more, uh, a much higher volume of things. So we kind of, you know, we, we start at that enterprise level and work our way down to small businesses. But yes, absolutely. So for, if you think about what those things are, I need a, you know, I need to sign a lease for my building, or I've got employment agreements, or I've got a service agreement, or somebody sending me an NDA, or somebody sending me a statement of work, or you know, all of these things that um, occur readily, quite often in business. Um, and there are a number of things that effectively we've focused on author doing. One is uh, getting through the approval process of those. So a lot of people talk about review, but what, what, what we want to do is actually enable that end user, that non-legal person, to be able to get a contract checked, to be able to get changes made to that contract and have it ready for approval um, that is in line with what they can tolerate. So that's one of the first things. The next is being able to draft legal contracts and content. So instruction-based drafting. Author, can you draft me an NDA between myself and Simon based on a conversation that we're going to have? Um, and the AI go off and actually do that. The next, the you know, the third area is very much answering legal questions. So, um, you know, if somebody shares a photo of me online, is that breaching my privacy? Those sorts of questions that you'd frequently get asked or you'd frequently want to ask a lawyer. Um, and the last area is really that research, and that's very much up in the um, areas for large enterprises. So where, 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 is, where are my compliance risks uh, and, and those sorts of things? This regulation has changed. How does that impact my business? Those sorts of things. So there are really four areas about approval contracts, drafting, um, answering, we call it triaging, legal queries and, and research. Remarkable, and so yeah. Let, let's go through the process of if you um if you are, you, you know, let, let's say you're a um a person who's in charge of organising the lease in one of these bigger companies. Then, how would you actually interact with the product? Um, you can interact in a couple of ways. So one one thing we learned pretty quickly in in, in our um in our experimentation phase is that that interface. Um, is it will be continuously disruptive, and what's important to us has been building an, 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 an AI platform 
Um, so where we see that at the moment, the, the sort of interfaces that we have, we've got an instruction based. So send it, for example, you've got a lease agreement, you forward that lease agreement to author just via email, and it will come back to you with a number of things that it might see as wrong. It will say that it's made some changes, um, and you can amend those if you want to amend those. But effectively, it's ready for for signing or going back to the other party. So email is absolutely one way of doing that. Um, and then there's also online, so web portals and, and that sort of stuff as well. So the, the interaction is very much instruction-based. And in, in terms of setting the um, parameters for how the um, how author interprets that lease agreement, is it um, part rule-based that are set by the kind of tolerances of each organisation, but also part kind of... Um, best practice law-based and, and you choose to kind of deviate from best practice or how does that work and is it different kind of jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Yeah, that's a really good question because it can be technical, but I'll, um, I'll answer it as simply as, as I can. There are, there are explicit things that each business kind of wants to set their tolerance on. We call those their standards, right? So we enable people to train on their standards. If, think of it as a checklist to setting, setting tolerances. I mean, then there are implicit things, and those implicit things are very much around the laws and best practice of that jurisdiction. We we don't necessarily see jurisdiction as being too big an issue. There are there are a lot of similarities between the jurisdictions that we work in, and actually, generally, the challenges people have in contracts, they're generally not written illegally. They're generally it's the commercial points, and it, so it is that explicit standard that people like to to set. Yeah, I guess that's why it's called common law and not uncommon law that a lot of this <laughs> stuff is, is based on. Uh, that, that, that's, um, that, that is an um, a actual matter of process. Uh, so does someone go through at the beginning and kind of um, pop in their tolerances? Is there like a period of, of training? And yes, yeah, something that would be really interesting maybe to, to kind of get a steer on would be, you know, what what's actually driving the bits that aren't put in by a um, mm. by a company like you, you know setting the parameters? Where does the the AI um, part of this uh, story come in? Where does the NLP and the kind of machine yeah. learning elements? Yeah, so so if I if I go to like the the fundamentals of what we've done, um, we've built. Uh, an AI that it really understands, it's about learning. Um, so it's about accelerating that that knowledge transfer, that expertise. Um, so we've built an, an AI that really reads, writes, and understands like a lawyer, reasons like a lawyer. And there's a bunch of learning that goes into that. Where techniques like NLP, so there are a couple of techniques there. We, we see AI as a toolbox. Um, and there are a number of different approaches you can take to solving problems. We don't think one tool helps you build a house. You need to use all the tools to build a house. And what we've done is basically built these models using all of these different AI approaches, whether it be machine learning, whether it be natural language processing, natural language generation, whether it be semantic web, all of these different things that we've done. Um, and we've experimented in all those areas. And, and effectively what we've done is created um, an AI that can understand how to read legalese the way it should. So understanding things like the directionality of a contract. Is this in your favor or is it in our favor? Is this clause in your favor or our favor? Is this contract 
um, creating a condition that is um, that you must meet an obligation or a benefit or a right. Understanding all of those things. So when um, you sit there and you say, well, this is a contract that I'm happy with, we're able to extract all of that information and we're able to set those sorts of things as standards. So you're, you're comfortable with these obligations and these conditions. So when we see another contract come in, if those match, that's fine. If they don't match, if you've got a new obligation being put on you, the question is, are you happy to accept that obligation or not? So that's sort of how that goes. And um, we we train the AI um, to to understand that stuff out of the box, and then we allow uh, you as a business to set a number of different really kind of explicit tolerant points. So there is a period of training where you, you go through and actually um, just set those standards if you're an enterprise. The vast majority, when we start moving down into medium and smaller businesses, the vast majority are just going to go, whatever you say, McCarthy Finch is the best practice we're just going to implement because a lot of people don't really um, care too much about that stuff. I, I saw in some of the um, I saw in some of the demos uh, that part of what the uh, program does is for particular clauses it will um, highlight you, you know to bring it to attention and this is a really interesting thing in kind of the way that AI you know people go oh robots are going to replace us but really it's this idea of augmenting um, people who already have skill sets so if you look at a lease and maybe there's 50 clauses in there and maybe 44 of them are just totally standard and they would overwhelm um, a layperson. and you use the system to pull out the six that have um, some kind of uh, as you say directionality they could go either way for a person and then kind of go this is this is what we're thinking and this is what we're saying um, and and this is what we're recommending and then the person operating it would go through and go, oh, yes, yes, no, yes, which is, um, you know, a remarkable simplification. And if you have worked with lawyers before, that's what a lawyer does. You you send them the contract and then they ring up and they go, well, there's only six things to really worry about. It's this, this, this and this. And what do you want to do? But that costs like $2,000. And, and, you know, what, what what's the kind of um, model for doing that through McCarthy Finch? So... So I think explain. So yeah, absolutely. Explainability. Um, if I diverge a little bit, is super important in artificial intelligence the world over. Um, in law, it, it's it's much more important because you can't say I'm not going to sign this contract because the AI said 85% don't. Um, right. You, you need to understand why you're doing something. And those are actually commercial points and, and those are things that we're trying to empower the end user to do. So explainability is a massive, massive problem in AI and it's something we've spent a lot of time trying to understand and actually create um, an outcome for. And and we've we've achieved that. And I think that that's a really one of one of the really big like fly flag what we've done um, from little old New Zealand. This is, you know, businesses the leading people in AI around the world struggle with this stuff. Let's jump into that just quickly there, because that's one of the fascinating things about AI um, in some of the ways that it's done, is that uh, you, you know it's it's known as the black box problem. You put the things in, and then an answer comes out, and you say, "Well, how did you get there?" And the people who've set up the AI uh, processes say, "We're not a hundred percent sure." Yeah, <laughs> and that's a kind of that's a kind of wizardry and magic. And so, how do you how do you in a thing like um, law avoid that? 
So, so I think it comes. To, there's a technical, you know, under, underpinning a lot of AI development. It's been the explosion of data, and so you're doing big data learning. You're doing deep learning, which is what you're seeing Google do, and you're seeing AWS, and you're seeing a lot of businesses. It's what Uber. You know, you sit there, and Uber goes, "We've got a billion miles on the clock of data that we've learned." Um, but the, the the challenge is none of that's human comparable, right? So you think about intelligence being something that um, rivals us, and and if we needed a billion miles of driving before we knew how to drive a car, we wouldn't be driving cars. So it's not very human comparable. And and what we've seen is because it goes into these kind of black boxes of AI, um, developers aren't actually able to correct it that easily. They are not able to steer the intelligence in efficient ways. And, and you know, that's been seen with Microsoft releasing their Twitter bot that turned into a <laughs> Nazi-loving racist, or Google who released, um, you know, ta- uh, tags in their um, pictures where gorillas were identified, the term gorilla was identifying people, being incredibly racist again. Um, and, and the only way that Microsoft or Google could respond to those situations was turn off the service because they couldn't actually understand what the AI was doing. Um, because it was just taking points from data. And so not only do you not have explainability of that from a user perspective, from a development perspective, it becomes very hard. And and so I think there's a there's a challenge um, where we've been where AI has been going in terms of relying on deep learning as is this kind of um, wonder wonder answer to AI. I don't believe it is. It's that's a controversial topic in in, in AI, but I, I don't believe it is. I think, as I said, it's part of a toolbox. So from our perspective, it was about building different tools to actually achieve those outcomes and being very very um, wedded to these ideas of human comparable learning and explainability. In terms of getting this out to um, partners and people you're using, um, it seems like quite a quite a brave thing for a law firm who, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, make their money out of billing by the hour. And so, where there's mystery, there's margin, and there's a fair bit of mystery in a um, in, in 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 conveyancing or in um, lease uh, checking or things that are actually very standard and and can be replaced by this. How have the law firms been when you come in and say, we're going to replace, um, I saw one of your stats saying 99% of the kind of junior law firm clerical work was replaced by bringing in the AI. Like, is that scary for them making money? Um, I think it's scary on a number of levels. I, I kind of say the, you know, the resistance, I, I guess the fear is only, is only as powerful as the resistance to change. Um, it's kind of one of the things I say about this. And... And I think if we look at disruption over time, um, there are winners and losers. And, and so you need to pick what is disruption, right? At the moment, a lot of legal tech is not disruptive tech. It's about supporting a lawyer um, do their job. And whether those pa- they pass on the benefits to us as end users is very much up to them. So there's, there's a, I guess there's, a, there's this pervasive um, safety in, in kind of how things currently are. So I don't think a lot of people are too scared. Uh, some of the stupid stats that are coming out, legal tech um, pilots fail, 92% of them fail to be implemented you know, firm-wide. So you're seeing a lot of tech coming up and a lot of tech failing. And because it's not, it's not disrupting that culture that exists. So I think there's this false sense of security already at the moment. 
when we've worked with lawyers and have seen some of the stuff that they I do, we've we've had people leave the room and not come back. We've we've had people worried. Um, I don't think they should be worried. We we in the last year we've you know we've hired around nine nine to eleven legal engineers um, in our business. There are new roles being created, and when you think about improving access to justice um, in New Zealand and Australia. 600,000 people are denied access to justice every year, right? There's a huge pool of white space as opportunity if you can lower the bar of, um, I guess, access to justice and access to legal services. But it's a completely different way of serving the market. And I think that that is really, really tough for any law firm to kind of understand because you've built a business model and that transition is really hard. But the longer we go with the current model, the harder that transition is going to be. And I think at the moment, people are kind of in a level of denial still. There are regulations that protect, um, there's a, you know, the, the conveyances are, are protected a lot of, and, and, and a lot of that stuff. So there are regulations that need to be underpicked. So I think it's going to take a long time to get through that. But absolutely, I think some people had a fear over the last two years. I think that fear has subsided because there's this false sense of security now that that this legal tech, this AI is supporting them. Um, but it doesn't take much for that to flip. And when people start thinking about, well, actually, how do we support the end user? How do we actually you know, serve them, not the law firm? A bit of what we're doing, I think that's when you start seeing disruption. And that that's where um, people need to think very hard about it, about what that relationship is that they have with their knowledge and their technical skill set. So the current customer are kind of, you know, businesses who have lots of um, legal things to transact. Uh, but eventually, would the state be that it would be uh, some kind of online service where any person who didn't have an ongoing relationship with uh, this, this service could just log on and go, oh, I've got a lease to do. I've never done a lease before. Tell me whether this is in my favour or not in my favour and what I should watch out for. And then, as you say, in terms of that access to justice, they'd then have, instead of having to go with whatever was kind of set for them without knowing what they were doing and not being able to afford expensive um, advice, they could pay a small fee and then be more equipped. Yeah, I, I think... It's about empowering users. So I, I talk often about um, WebMD, right? So 15 years ago, when we went to the doctor, we went to the doctor and we listened to the doctor. And if we really wanted to, we'd, we'd get a second opinion. But ultimately, what the doctor told us was what, what was the reality. Um, but with WebMD, we now go, or oh, similar, we now go to the doctor knowing exactly what's wrong with us, or at least believing we know exactly what's wrong with us. And we drive that relation. We were empowered in that relationship. And so I think when, you, when you're looking at courtrooms that are at capacity, you're looking at judges who, you know, you just worked off their feet. Um, when you're a government looking at actually, well, how does this whole justice thing work properly? That's just courts, right? How do you empower those people so that you keep them proactively, keep them away from court? Obviously, criminal is a completely different thing. But how do you keep people away from those disputes? Or how do you how do you even keep people away from um, getting to the point of dispute? And it's about empowering people. And so that's very much about providing affirmation, giving people access to their rights and their obligations. Um, we've we've seen and had conversations with large businesses who said, well, I'd love for my customers to understand their obligations 
um, far better than they do because we just get inundated with frivolous um, complaints that actually are they're the consequence of them not understanding their obligations, right? So it's a really, really big thing to unpack, but empowering people in that process actually is a really, really big way of, of um, giving everybody a better outcome. Yeah, that's interesting because it's not just uh, the little person being screwed by the big the big companies uh, because, yeah, you do have obligations in each side of the contract. So if you don't know it and you don't follow it, um, that would be remarkably difficult. Like because law has been so kind of um, nuanced and kept kind of um, – willfully complex in lots of ways with you know arcane language and needing interpretation uh of of you know what are very simple kind of um uh entity to entity contracts um did people tell you that this wouldn't work did they tell you you were you were bananas to be trying to do this yeah we've we've had a lot of you know, we 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 do get pushback. I I think the one that sticks out in my mind the most is I was in Rome giving a talk um, at a conference to around two hundred managing partners of law firms, and one one person got up and said, "There's no way AI is ever going to replace me. My job is so technical. Um, you you'll never be able to do it. Why are you even here talking to us?" Um, and I think the answer to that question is actually, uh, and how I answered that was, A, that wasn't a question, it's literally a statement. Um, so thanks. But the, 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 challenge, the challenge is, is it technical? And is that really the relation, is that really the commercial relationship that you have with your end users? Are they, are they there purely for that technical um, wizardry, which AI can absolutely do? Or are they are they there for the are they there for the commerciality that the commercial relationship and advice that they can give you, based on those technical points, and so the, I mean a lot of people, I guess underestimate the impact of technology over time, and a lot of people kind of overestimate how soon it will happen, and I think Bill Gates says that, and I think that's absolutely the truth. So when you're a 35 or 36-year-old lawyer saying there's no way AI is ever going to be able to do what I do. The answer is yes, it absolutely will. And when we ask those questions, will AI ever be able to do what we do? The answer is absolutely yes. Me as a CEO, what do I do? I make a lot of decisions. A lot of those decisions an AI could make because a lot of those decisions are based on the same sorts of things, right? That It's just a pattern. So I think we need to be very aware that actually work is going to change over time. Um, and that's not a bad thing because our jobs will evolve as well. But we need to really understand that that what what drives us are those interactions between humans and and actually being able to interpret advice from a machine or advice from a colleague and actually put that into a one-on-one relationship. That's where value lies. And so um, we, we've we've yeah we've had a lot of pushback from people, and and I think it, it's just how you look at the problem. And some pushback, but also some extraordinary traction in a short time with some of the world's biggest uh, professional services foot firms, um, uh, law firms um, be- being interested. And then that, um, that that VC backing from GOAT, who are um, AI kind of pioneers and experts. Yeah, t- tell me how, how, how you've um, managed to go from, I mean, I, mean, I guess having the backing of a, a really prestigious law firm helps, but how do you go from having an AI and, 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 and then getting into um, into these big businesses? 
Yeah, so we've had, I would say it's a wild ride. Um, and and it's not just the large global professional services firms. It's not the, you know, we've, we've met with many of them. We've been in the rooms with large law firms around the world, be it in, you know, Australia, US, Europe. Um, we've also been in with some of the most advanced companies in the Valley. So the, some of the biggest names in the Valley. And and really it's because we've we've focused in on a problem around explainability, about human comparable learning, that really is at the fundamental kind of core of how do you make AI useful, um, and it's been it, that's been a wild ride because what we've done is we've worked on these incredibly hard and complex use cases. We, we've gone and said, hey, we we can do this. What, whatever you can't do, throw it at us, and we've taken on some of the biggest players in the market. Um, and and beat on them, and and I think that that just goes to show that like in New Zealand, um, while you're away from that kind of world, actually the hype that you see coming coming through the media, um, you can cut through that very easily, and and that for us has been a massive learning, which is we've learned what those large law firms are struggling to do, what they want to do but can't do. We've learned what those professional services firms want to do but can't do what those large um, tech players who, you know, tout themselves at being, at the, you know, the, the leading edge of innovation, what they can and can't do. For us, when knowledge is a product, um, we've got an ex- immense amount of knowledge out of that. Um, and, and I think that's really, really powerful. And it also provides a huge amount of confidence when, when going into these problems. How do you do it out of New Zealand? Like, is it a challenge to find, you know, I, I, I've seen that you're um, – teams kind of you know around about 20 and you've got a bunch of PhDs and then a bunch of people who have legal backgrounds and uh, tech backgrounds as well how do you find people of a high enough um, skill set and that broad skill set in such a small market well we, we didn't get everybody from New Zealand um, uh, we, we kind of went we scoured the world um, for some of that talent and I think when you look at the 90,000 AI PhDs that exist in the world, uh, about 3,000 of those are actually compatible with working in a business, and then it's even a smaller number when it comes to a domain-specific problem. There are not a lot of PhDs in the legal domain who can do what they need to do. So from a, from a challenge perspective, as a business challenge perspective, it's actually about developing some of that talent. Um, so being very, very... Uh, for a while focused on the function that they need to provide and then developing them out in it. And so when you look at the team that we've built, that team has been built and they've walked through the kind of fires of learning and developing and they'll be at the forefront of this domain out of everywhere in the world, right? There'll be very, very few people who have the talent that they have now. And um, in New Zealand, I think we've been very lucky to have had the backing of mentors and GOAT to begin, we, we didn't have to bootstrap a product and get it into market straight away. So we've actually been able to develop that talent, understand the market, understand where all of our competitors are struggling, and actually find um, really what that core um, product is that we need to develop and develop our tech and develop our people and, and come together in a really strong way. And I think that's very exciting. And that that really is how we've been able to bring kind of that Silicon Valley experience into New Zealand. Um, and, and I think that's been quite rare. Um, uh, it's been quite rare in the startup scene in New Zealand. A lot of New Zealand startup scenes are kind of on a shoestring. Um, they've, they've had to bootstrap and, and 
get into market. And I think while there are benefits to doing that, there are absolutely benefits to developing kind of this commercial product through a huge amount of R&D and development of, of talent. Yeah, even just saying the words legal PhD sounds tremendously expensive. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the benefits in New Zealand, though, is that, um, you know, we, 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 the cost of talent in New Zealand is significantly lower than the cost in the States. And in terms of the accolades along the way as well, it's a really young company. And, um, you know, how important is it to you in opening doors and attracting that talent and getting those meetings? Is it to have... Um, been recognised uh, in, in Innovation Awards or in the Global uh, Talent Unleashed Awards that were um, judged by your Sir Richard Branson's and Steve Wozniak's. Yeah, I think it is an important it is an important um, part of what you are as a business. One is um, when you're kind of like heavily in R and D and you're not necessarily um, commercialised. It's really good to have that recognition for the work that you're doing. Um, because you don't get a lot of external reinforcement, I guess, through that process. So that's really important, but it also sends a message to that, the, the people looking in on your business, that this is actually a business that's doing something very different, that's leading the world in some of the stuff that it's doing. Um, and why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? So yeah, it's, it's really important to get that stuff. It's also very important to get those messages out there, because I think some of the messages around what we're doing, around the problem that we're trying to tackle, are very valid to everybody. Um, and, and, and again, those sorts of awards validate that problem. How's that R&D supported? So the R&D is very, well, we're very much, um, you know, we've been like 80, 85% R&D for, for a long time. Um, so Callahan obviously um, has been substantial in supporting us through their, their grant system, which I think is absolutely one of those um, things that have been key to a lot of building a lot of, um, I guess, smart tech businesses in New Zealand. Um, so that, that's been a massive support. We, we have obviously got relationships into the universities, whether it be um, through the AI stuff or through the legal stuff. Um, uh, we, we, you know, a number of our legal um, engineer kind of interns run the Legal Tech NZ um, sort of student association um, at university. So we've been very big in supporting that actual, that entire thing. And you create this nice kind of ecosystem of um, Callahan connecting you the way they'd connect you and funding you, uh, connecting into the universities to build that talent pool. And then obviously New Zealand is a fantastic scene to be testing ideas with different businesses. We're very, very open. And a couple of questions that we always like to ask everyone, you know, having come through the digital innovation and kind of doing side of business, you know, and then landing into, um, you know, a really exciting venture as a, um, a first time CEO, what kind of stuff do you, did, did you have to skill, skill up on? And, uh, you know, was there anything that you wish you'd known earlier? Um, for me, I think, I think it, it's always kind of like, does your intuition align with what, what? Um, you need to actually execute on, and I always, I always chuckle because you 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 see a lot of young people come through, and I'm not saying that I'm old, but you do see a lot of young people come through, and you know, what excites them? They say strategy excites me. Um, strategy is one percent of the problem. Um, the idea is one percent of the problem. Ninety nine percent of the problem is executing that strategy. Um, and so, from from my point of view, uh, coming in as a CEO, it's it's really about how do you most effectively execute on the strategy that you have when 
um, so much of what you're doing is invention. And, and I think that is an incredibly hard challenge to get through because invention, there are no answers. There are no blueprints. There's no, there's absolutely no confidence that what you spend three weeks, six weeks, nine weeks, 12 weeks, you know, six months on is actually going to result in the outcome that you want to achieve. And when do you pull the pin on that? So executing on invention is incredibly challenging. Um, and again, I think that's definitely something I would have liked to um, had a, a bit more confidence in before coming into this. But I don't think anybody can get confidence in, in invention. And the other thing is just managing, you know, managing stakeholders, um, whether it be, you know, be above you, whether it be outside you, when you're on that invention kind of process is, is another thing that I think is, is really important that is, is managed well. Do you have words you live by? Um, I absolutely do. So, so for me, um, you know, I have kind of like these five things and I talk to everybody about it when they talk about like, you know, career and all that stuff. And it's, you know, it's very much do things that haven't been done before, tech, um, <laughs> make a measurable improvement in the world. So make sure you're doing something that actually um, is going to make a difference. Um, always be learning, experience new things and, and avoid avoiding. Those are th- sort of things that kind of like, those are my mantras of um, just being a leader, just being some, you know, tying what I do back to what, what excites me and what drives me. I really enjoyed, I saw on your um, website, which is just basically those five ideas yeah. uh, on the page. Um, I really like that idea of avoid avoiding. It's one of the questions I ask myself when I find myself kind of, you know, drifting between tabs on my computer, I'll be what is it that I'm meant to be doing right now? <laughs> yeah, I think I think um, avoid avoiding was kind of like I started with four things, and then it became very obvious to me that um, you can put things off, and whether it be long term, whether it be short term, procrastinating or um, putting off a hard conversation. I think as a leader, you, you just have to get you have to rip the bandaid off. The longer you leave something, the more harder, the harder it's going to be for somebody to take that news, the harder it's going to be for you to deliver the news, or the, the greater impact um, it, something's going to have. And I think Jeff Bezos and, and Sir Richard Branson talk a lot about decision-making and you know the two-way door. And I think that's very important. And, and I think making decisions at velocity is super important in a business. And being comfortable with the fact that a decision is a two-way door. There's very rarely that the door shuts behind you, you can't get back through it, right? So being very comfortable with that. So avoiding putting off a decision because you think that you can't get back through it is one of those things that you see um, really create impact, um, but negative impact on a business. What advice do you give to people who are starting out and, and interested in entrepreneurship or being a CEO? Uh, the advice I'd give is is very much, I think you need to have a good understanding of domain problems. So if you feel very strongly about a problem and you have the knowledge about the problem, then I think back yourself to absolutely solve that problem. I think we've got a, we've got a really cool scene in New Zealand now where we're getting greater and greater talent. I think we're building people who want to be more entrepreneurial. So I think you will find people who want to support you. Um, and so... Get in the market quickly, test ideas rapidly, and push the brutes. If you know what that problem is and you're passionate about the problem, you'll find people who will support you, and you'll find out very quickly whether you can commercialize that or not. And as a last thought, you know, having, um, you know, being kind of very early on the, the journey, but also very far into some of the big problems grappling with this big industry, having met with some of these great names and having, you know, you know this really strong backing, 
you know, that, that looks really successful from the outside, but how do you define success and what would be kind of professional and personal success for you? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because um, my, I'm always geared to continuously doing better, right? So I'm, I'm an ambitious person. So I, I really, I look at what we've achieved and I think if you look at success, on different timelines. I think we've been incredibly successful up to this point in time. We just closed uh, another round of funding. We've you know, got a, a great valuation for the size of the business that we are at, where we're at. I think those are very successful outcomes. We've, you know, we've built a business that's hiring 23 New Zealanders, um, creating new careers for people. I think that's very successful. I think being on stage at TechCrunch and actually you know, we had 414 million page impressions after that. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly awesome to kind of achieve those things. Um, the next the next real phase for me is that profitability of the business. So let's get some real commercial runway, um, run rates on the board. And, you know, we've got clients in the U.S. now that we, we're going through that process on. We've got a, a scene in New Zealand that's very excited about what we're doing in Australia the same. So success over the next 12 months is very much about um, closing in on profitability and maximizing kind of what we're doing and freeing the business up to take those longer term views. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much. Nick Whitehouse, the CEO at McCarthy Finch, for coming to talk to us today. Cheers. Thanks, Simon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Dina Diller, for producing. And thank you very much for having us in your ears. Uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do uh, jump on and uh, like and subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, have a look at some of the hundred, uh, more than 100 guests that we've spoken to. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.